bar in New York City. And I remember that the tonsil was in this small styrofoam cooler that I was just holding on the subway. And I was like, oh my God, am I really doing this? You're listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille, and welcome to the fifth conversation of the season. Today, I talk with immunologist Alex Soiree, who will be in conversation with our next guest, artist Charles Trey Mason III. Alex and I talk about her interest in merging the sciences with other fields, the work she's doing with the Baltimore chapter for the Association for Women in Science, and some of the weirdest things that she's had to carry on the New York City subway. My name is Alexandra Suarez. I currently live in Baltimore, where I am a PhD student at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And I study microbiology and immunology, and that is essentially studying the mechanics of infectious diseases, you know, how we get infected with different pathogens, how our bodies react to that, and how we can use that information to maybe help make uh, vaccines or medications to cure these diseases. I'd like to begin with the reasons why you got into this field in the first place. Um, <laughs> yeah, so where did this inclination come from? So I had zero intention of doing anything related to medicine or science growing up. <laughs> um, I, I, didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't know many doctors or scientists. And also as a kid, I, I really didn't want to perpetuate a st- the stereotype of another Asian girl going in being good at science or math. My mother is Chinese. Mm. But also, I was far more interested in health in a sense. Like, I was interested in what behaviors and policies influence health. So kind of like on a whim to my parents' surprise right before I started college, I was like, huh, I want to, you know, study medicine and, and, mm. and science. Because infectious diseases seem to have this social component to it, um, it was something that wasn't just influenced by by biology, it was influenced by economics, by politics, by behavior. So when um, after I graduated, I got my master's degree in microbiology and immunology at Tulane University. Mm. And the field of microbiology and immunology is essentially like you're studying cells on this high magnitude. So it's kind of like the field of cellular biology, like how do cells work? It's like that on steroids. Mm. And I almost failed my cell biology classes when I was in college. Uh-huh. And then when I got to my master's program, it like all made sense. Like once I understood how these different viruses and bacteria and fungi and parasites, once I understood how they basically hotwired the whole system and how they basically mm. created chaos, it just made sense to me. And I loved and I loved studying it. I loved understanding these different pathogens and the havoc they cause. So it's kind of funny. After I graduated from Tulane, I was working in a lab in New York City that was studying Ebola therapeutic in, in the middle of the Ebola pandemic. That was oh, my wow. very first. That was my very first uh, big girl job. Oh my gosh! Throw yeah. you right in there. <laughs> yeah, 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 I did. And then after that, I worked in a lab. Um, I worked in a lab that was studying HIV-associated inflammation. And all this time, I always thought, like, oh, maybe uh, like this is all for me to basically, you know, pay bills until I'm able to get into medical school. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, I really began to, because, like, at the time, I guess, I still had that view that being a scientist wouldn't allow me to, you know, talk about more social aspects. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, like, honestly, the 2016 election 
that there was this cry amongst all sciences to show that, like, no, science is political. It is social. Like, there is more to it than just being in a lab. And that kind of, you know, for better, for worse, like, that's kind of what made me finally accept that, like, being a scientist is really what what I should do. Yeah. God, that's so, okay, so there's so many things I want to touch on in there. (laughs) It's a very very long story. I remember when we first talked as well, you brought up, you know, this rather desperate need for better science communication (laughs) on a broader scale. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious to hear if, is that something that you're noticing is being addressed more and more and more in the field? In this last year, I would say science communication has definitely been appreciated and I think encouraged. That being said, it's never part of our education. It's never part, like, you know, I, at no point in my science education do I really learn how what it is like to communicate to, you know, someone who isn't a scientist. Mm. I was kind of lucky in this regard because when I went to college, like, I, like my school was this very liberal arts focused school. So like I was maybe what one or two credits away from a Shakespeare minor. And like, I, I, oh, so funny. I, yeah. So like my, so because my, because my background's very diverse, I was able to talk about my field to, to people of different backgrounds. I do think that especially with everything that's been happening, mm. COVID, that at the very least, it's seen the need is seen. One of the most famous scientists in the COVID um, pandemic right now is Dr. Kismekia Corbett. She is she was like the scientific mind behind the the Moderna vaccine, essentially. And she, this brilliant, brilliant mm. woman, who is probably beyond busy, you know, but she has constantly made an effort to talk about science and bring science back to the community. I asked Alex to elaborate upon the current research that she's doing with fungal diseases, why she finds them fascinating, and what working in the lab is like. So right now, you know, I'm still in my training process. Currently, I'm in the lab of Vincent Bruno. He, and we study this very, this very understudied fungal disease called uh, mucormycosis. And we study the fungi that cause this disease. And basically how they're able to hide from the immune system. You know, when we get like, it's sometimes it's almost like, you know, it's not even there. They're able to trick our immune system to kind of like being hidden and they grow and grow until, until where to the point where it gets, you know, almost fatal. Hmm. And most of the times it is. So I had no intention of studying fungal diseases when I got here. Actually, uh-huh. I, I chose I chose this school because I wanted to go into vaccine development. But I chose the lab I'm in now because I recognize that being in this lab and specifically being with my my boss, uh, Dr. Bruno, or uh, Vinny, Vinny. <laughs> um, I've never called him Dr. Bruno, but being with my boss, but like, I recognize that like being in this lab and specifically the interactions I had with Vinny would help me grow as a scientist. Like he asked me questions in a way that helped me think more outside the box. Do you enjoy working in the la- in like a lab <laughs> space? And what, yeah, I'm curious to know, like what does an average day actually look like in, in the lab? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sure. Like, and, I think, and I think, honestly, you ask most scientists, that's kind of the answer. Because, yeah. like, science is, fa- is, is more often failures than successes, to be perfectly honest. And it, it's it's a grind. It's a grind. You, you have to have resilience to get through it because most of the time your stuff doesn't work. And you have to be able to think on how to to change it, to to adapt to it. 
I would say my day depends really on like the time of the year, if that makes sense, or what's like on the plate. You know, if it's a time where, you know, where, you know, maybe we're about to submit a grant or maybe we're about to write a paper. At the same time, I could be trying to rush to get this one experiment done so we can include it in this paper. So it really varies from time to time. But like, for the most part, I guess the last few months, because, you know, because of COVID, I lost on three months of research, basically, or three or four mm. months where, you know, the labs were shut down. Lately, I've been doing more like physical, I've been, you know, setting up experiments, setting up infections. So I guess an example would be like, I have my plate or my flask of cells and I'll infect them with my uh, fungi. And then after, let's say, maybe eight or maybe 24 hours of infection, depending on the kind of experiment I'm running and the question I'm, a- I'm asking, I'll collect the cells, I'll collect the, the liquid, the media they're in to see like maybe the, these cells secreted something out, you know, in response to these fungi. And then later throughout the week, I'll work with these samples to see like, okay, was this protein made in response to the fungi? Was this protein not made? Hmm. Did it, did, did, the, did the cells react like this? Uh, or did it react the opposite way? But a lot of um, being a scientist is also, you know, understanding the field, like reading on the current literature. So a lot of times um, I'm reading on seeing like, what's the newest thing that's been released? Or maybe there's some new technology I could use, or maybe there's some new phenomenon that's been discovered that might explain what's going, what might, that might explain the phenomenon that I'm seeing. It's a mixture of doing these experiments, reading and writing. You know, if I, if I recently did an experiment, maybe I want to write up whatever I'm going to do for mm-hmm. what, write up the results for a paper. And also engaging with people in the department engaging and not maybe not just within our department but other departments but finding out more about what's going on in the field outside of our own lab outside of our own sphere Mm-mm. you've mentioned in past writings or past interviews that this particular branch of microbiology the study of fungal infections is essentially one of the final frontiers of research in the field yeah i, I mean with fungal diseases a lot of it has also been a lack of diagnostics so it's it's hard to tell people you know oh study my disease you know it's important when you don't have the numbers to back it up but also like viral infections viral infections like we experience you know the flu every year bacterial infections like these are I guess they're more commonly seen as a public health threat and that's not to say that they aren't but I think fungal infections have just constantly been kind of brushed under the radar because it's so underreported. And to be honest, like they don't always cause disease. You know, like I, I have you and I have fungus in us right now, but we're not sick. Having like a fungus in you may not cause a disease. We don't really understand when is that switch where like this fungus inside us becomes a disease? So for the most part, uh, people who get these very severe fungal diseases, they tend to be immunocompromised. So someone who maybe is infected with HIV, has AIDS, maybe someone who recently un- who recently underwent chemotherapy, all these kinds of different underlying disorders. The notion of having like bacteria inside of you is something that we talk mm-hmm. about, but having fungus inside of you is yeah. it's not at all. I, I remember my I remember my boss, Finney, once telling me that like, you know, hospitals have to, you know, report like these bacterial infections, you know, you, you report like, okay, we had a case of we, we found like, you know, pseudomonas or mm. or whatnot in an individual but they don't have that for fungal diseases and um, one of the reasons why is because that idea of fungus 
being dirty, you know, you don't want to hear about like this hospital reporting, like, oh, we had like these funguses in us, you know, <laughs> like, like that's that's not. And, and, and to be honest, like, it doesn't sound great. <laughs> no, and, and, and especially when a lot of times that doesn't always lead to like a very bad disease. Mm. So it, it, it is. So you're right. It is a lot to do with language and has a lot to do. With also, I think our perception and understanding of these different uh, microbes. I mean, it wasn't until that recently that we um, accepted that bacteria could be good for us, for example, like the sure. microbiome. That was a very recent um, field. And now we're actually discovering that not only is there a microbiome with the bacteria, but there is a mycobiome. So it's spelled M-Y-C-O, so fungi in our system that has similar functions. We coexist uh-huh. and we have mutual benefits living together. Alex is involved with the Baltimore chapter for the Association for Women in Science, and we talked about the work that she's doing with them, as well as her perspective on what it's like being a woman in the STEM fields. So on top of being being a PhD student, I'm also the vice president of the Baltimore chapter for the Association for Women in Science, or otherwise known as AWIS. And AWIS is a professional organization that, you know, as the title suggests, was founded to help support women in various STEM fields. So even though it says science, there is some other, the technology, engineering, and math that's also included. I got involved in this because I was like, it was after my first year of grad, stu- of grad school, I wanted to do more stuff that was outside of school. I wanted to do something that was more involved in the community. Mm. And I remember hearing about AWIS and so I, from one of my friends, and so I looked at the Baltimore chapter and I saw that they, they needed someone to fill in for their vice president of social media. I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll do that. And so, and so I um, I emailed the president and we got in touch. And now I'm the vice president for so, of social media for the Baltimore chapter of AWIS. That's incredible. So, thank you. So I've, I've done this for less than two years now. A lot of the events that we do try to address the discrepancies in women in science, you know, What's interesting is that you see a lot of, we kind of come in equally, at least in the biological field. But what happens is that you see less and less women who become professors, who rise to the top, who become and less and less women who actually open their own lab. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. So we, we organize a lot of events that basically help to foster a network for women in science and maybe help them with professional development, help them learn more about the resources in their the resources that are applicable to them. Most of the stuff we've done actually, at least since I've been around, is actually during the pandemic. Mm. We did a couple events that were focused on, we called them Be More Women in STEM versus COVID. And mm. what, we, what it was were um, these panels of women scientists who were working on various aspects of the COVID pandemic. So we had one person who was studying what are different treatments for COVID. There was another woman who was working on clinical trials. We had someone who was working on racial disparities in COVID, someone else who was working on, who was more of a computer scientist who was studying different programming algorithms to understand like the language used to discuss COVID and how that relates specifically to Asian American discrimination. Hmm. So we had these panels of women talking about their field and basically what it was like to be a woman in STEM, what it was like to be a woman in STEM in the pandemic and kind of, you know, the advice and their experiences um, that they would give to future generations. From there, then I'm, I'm curious to hear about your own experiences. My experience as a woman in scientist actually fortunately has not been as bad or as severe as others. Like I, I know people who has had 
absolutely awful experiences. A lot of it has to do with, you know, sexual harassment or gender discrimination. I have gotten a lot of these offhanded comments about my appearances, about like what I should be doing. And like, mm. I do notice that a lot of male colleagues will talk to me differently in a way that then they would tr- talk to male colleagues. Or if sure. I voice something, they, it'd be kind of like, oh, sweetheart kind of thing, you know? I, I don't like putting tears to the experience of a woman as in STEM, but I have seen, I have witnessed other people who have had really bad experiences. I also know that like one of the reasons why you don't see as many, you don't see that many women in STEM progress to these higher professor mm. standings or especially to like open a throne lab, a lot of that has to deal with like one, you know, the gender and sexual discrimination. And two is if they decide to be mothers, because these mothers take time away from the lab, they are viewed as not as good of a scientist. For some reason, it, even now, it's hard for, for so, it's hard for a woman to be both a mother and a scientist and to be good at it because mm. there's so much of these like ridiculous notions that we have of what either should be. Sure, and that the system isn't set up to accommodate no, both. No, it's not. <laughs> Especially in academia. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to talk about how you've seen the last year really affect uh, how you work, the spaces that you're working in, um, how you see your field shifting? Well, the pandemic kind of shifted things for all of us. And then also what happened last summer, there was definitely, I know, I remember in June, there were, there was definitely a lot of conversations. There was a lot of dialogue. Um, there's a structural racism that's in place that clearly affects every aspect of our society. And we as scientists, although we like to think that we're these logical beings, we're not immune to that. Mm-hmm. And so how do we address that? What are things that have, been, that have happened in the past that kind of led us to where we are and what can we do in the future? So in June, there definitely was a lot of dialogue about that. Has it stuck around or...? <sighs> I, to be honest, like it's definitely dampened down during the election. I mean, as far as sustained change, I, I don't know if there's going to be. I, I hope I hope that there will be sustained change in STEM as far as understanding the racial injustices in our institution, understanding that like science actually has had more or less a role in perpetuating a lot of the racial mm. stereotypes today. Yeah, well, I mean, that was like your first sentence, right? (laughs) And you were describing it as like, I don't want to perpetuate the stereotype of being an Asian woman in science, you know, so it's clearly uh, relevant. Yeah, and so I I really don't know as far as like what will be the long-lasting like good changes that will come from that. I think the pandemic has definitely shifted like a renewed interest in science. At the same time, I cannot tell you how many people are trying to explain science to me. Like, trying to explain viruses. They're like, well, like, I remember this one guy was trying to t- tell me, like, oh, you know, COVID's not as big as the flu. And when I disputed that, he's like, well, I don't think you want to do your own research. You you obviously are someone who, you know, doesn't do their own research, who doesn't understand this oh stuff. Oh, my I was gosh. Like, I literally have been published in a journal of virology. Are you, are you, are you for real? <laughs> like, I have been studying this for years. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, my God. Like, wow. So there's still, there's still that. I do think, um, I hope that there's an understanding now that science and medicine isn't as, you know, binary as people uh, has previously previously seen it. It's not like you're either sick or you're not, or it's not like this medicine works or it doesn't. It's so complex and it's so dynamic and it's constantly moving. We're constantly trying to adapt what we know with new, like we're trying to place what we already know with the information that we're receiving. It's a very dynamic, very fluid field. 
We circled back around to the issue of science communication and how being open to collaboration plays an integral part in being a good science communicator. Yeah, I think a lot of scientists, we, I feel like there's a perception of scientists being encyclopedias and just mm. having to know all this knowledge. And then we kind of perpetuate that by being so one-track minded in our field, being hyper-focused on one thing. More recently, I would say, you know, recently science communication, I think, has been become more of a field. It's become more appreciated. I just think that, you know, as scientists, you know, most of our funding comes from taxpayers. It comes from the NIH. It comes from, you know, government. And so mm. on some level, don't we have a responsibility to tell these people who help fund our research to tell them, like, what we're what is we're doing with our research and help them understand what's going on? Like, don't we have some sort of responsibility to also make sure that, like, what we do actually has an impact. You know, other, for me at least, like, I know there are some scientists who the discovery of new things is good enough for them and that's it. And that's great. But for me personally, I wouldn't understand doing my research, like, you know, doing my work on HIV, doing my work on Ebola, doing my work on this fungus disease, if it didn't impact the people who needed it the most. You know, mm. what, like, what's the, what, what even is the point of me spending all these hours in the lab doing all this research if it means nothing in the end? One of the reasons why I initially didn't want to go into scientists is because I thought it was such a like one field kind of track of mine. You know, you study biology, you study chemistry, and that's it. And to be honest, that is the stupidest way you could do science. Like just mm. sticking to your own field and not collaborating with other people, even maybe outside, you know, the science field. To me, like collaboration is what makes science great. That's where you get the that's where you get some of the best ideas. It's it's stupid for a scientist to kind of have to think that like you hold all the knowledge necessary for your project or to hold mm. all the necessary or hold all the information necessary to move that project forward. Collaboration is kind of what has driven the biggest scientific discoveries of our time. Mm. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable and get outside your, your normal realm to really find these new ideas. After we wrapped up the conversation, Alex wanted to call me back a little while later to share some of the moments that make being a scientist really weird. I remember there was one day, like one of my first jaws, we were working with mice. The mouse like escaped this guy's hand like and crawled up his arm and then jumped onto my arm, oh crawled my all the way up into my hair. And there was, oh, no. Yeah, and, and oh. there was a time where this was, this was, oh. I would have absolutely lost it. But it was at this point, like I was so used to handling mice. I cannot believe I'm at this stage of my life. <laughs> where it's just no big deal. There's just a mouse no, in my hair. Yeah, there's just a mouse in my hair. Yeah, oh, and it's been infected God. with something. I don't even remember what it was infected with, but I was like, so I get this stupid <laughs> mouse out of my hair, please. Oh my uh, god. So another story when <laughs> when I were, when I lived in New York City I was um, I was working in the HIV lab and we had to <laughs> we used a uh, human tonsil tissue like the tonsil tissue you get like you know if you get a tonsillectomy and like the and a doctor would take the tonsil tissue out that tonsil tissue was actually like a really good way to study certain parts of HIV huh. associated inflammation. So I worked on the Upper East Side and NYU was on, was it like close to Union Square is further south. And so I had to go to NYU this one day to pick up the tonsil tissue. Well, first of all, like they just like the guy, like I, I show up in the emergency room and the guy just, and this dude just hands me like a cup, like just this cup with, with the oh tissue. He's like, here you go. And then just left. And I was like, okay, cool. And I, then I had to go back to the lab. And so this was around this is around uh rush hour in new york city oh, God. and i remember like i was i was clutching like the, the tonsil was in this 
was in, was in this like small styrofoam cooler that I was just holding on the subway. And I was like, oh my God, like, I like, am I really doing this? I'm just holding this, you know, this ice chest essentially oh of human God. tissue. And like, it's, 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 oh my God. it's rush hour so and weird. it's crowded, especially around this area. And I remember at one point someone did jostle me and I almost dropped it. I was like, I really don't want to have to explain to someone. Like, <laughs> and, and like don't mind the tonsil tissue oh on the floor. My, yeah. Like I, I really don't, I really don't want to deal with this. Join us next week on Our Shared Field to hear from our next guest, artist Charles Trey Mason III. I'm so much more interested in people having my work that actually care about it. Like you had it, you looked at it, you loved it, you appreciated it, you thought about it, you contemplated on it, and you believed in me. Because you're not paying for the work, you're paying for me. You believed in me. You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is by DJ Osaji, a DJ, producer, and community events curator who uses his knowledge of music to educate listeners on the traditional forms and sounds of African-American culture. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast, and to our technical director, Eric Carbonara, at Not A Sound Studio. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Lenni Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Until next time, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field.